This is the We the People, Our American Story podcast. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every week to hear the remarkable stories of veterans, combat survivors, first responders, and American patriots in their own words. If you are pro-freedom and pro-America, you are in the right place. We the People, Our American Story is the podcast for Americans who fiercely and unapologetically love America. Welcome to this episode of We the People, Our American Story. It is season five, my very first episode of the season. My guest is Ray Griffin. Ray, welcome. And I don't want to put too much pressure on you, but because you are the first of the season, this can either set the precedence for a dud <laughs> of a season or it can be absolutely fantastic, but no pressure on you. No problem. I like pressure. Okay, great. Well, let's do it then. How are you today? I'm well. Can't complain. It's been like we were talking earlier. It's been a busy day already. So it's been awesome. How about you? Uh, let's see. I haven't done a whole lot yet this morning. This is uh, really the first thing that I've had going. It's still summer while we're doing this and the kids are out of school and we're all a little bit lazy still. That will end yeah. shortly. Well, as a dad of eight kids, even though a couple of them are still out of the house, we're still involved. It's it's never a lazy day. I imagine so. Ray, let's get this started. Would you mind telling us a little bit about your family growing up? And if you had any military service in your family. Sure. So I live here, obviously, here in Utah right now. And I actually have pioneer relatives that came here on the plains and handcarts and other things. But then we actually, some of them moved on. I grew up in Southern California in Orange County, Huntington Beach area, moved around different places. But that's the general area, probably my favorite. So that's why I claim that. And then at about 12 years old, we moved to Eastern Pennsylvania, about an hour north of Philly, outside of a town called Allentown a lot of people have heard from the Billy Joel song. You know, grew up in the oldest of seven kids and a very, very, uh, just a good family, hardworking parents, just a great home. I mean, given opportunities, it was important to my parents that I tried lots of different sports, lots of different activities, you know, 4-H and art classes. I was never very good at art. Uh, music, I started playing the piano at about, I think, four and a half, five years old and have been playing ever since. It was important to them in about fourth grade, we could pick up like an orchestral instruments like the violin then I tried the saxophone after that and the drums and it just it just kept going from there that's kind of what I grew up in and throughout growing up soccer was a big deal volleyball um, outdoors scouting all those kinds of things were a big deal to me my family was kind of an example of the extended family we were also into music and musicals and plays acting those kinds of things I was never that good I was always one behind the piano. I feel like I was never as good as some of my family members, but there's a lot of culture in our family. My grandparents on my mom's side, my great grand or grandfather, he served in World War II in the Navy. And he always said, and the more I tried to talk to him, especially once I joined, I tried to pry more out of him. I said, I was just on a ship for a while and then we were done and that was it. I never got enough details or more than, than that, but for him, it was just, he just did what he was supposed to do. Isn't it a shame, though, that those veterans from World War II, the greatest generation, and the Vietnam, Korea, they don't, they don't like to share their stories? No, and I get it. For them, I you know for my grandpa talking to him, it was high school, and he was going on with life. 
He knew he was going to get married, wanted a family, and the war came along. He knew he needed to join. He joined the Navy, and, and it just was just part of what he was going to do. He did it and came home and moved on. It wasn't like in many ways, like me joining and others joining now, it's something like, okay, I'm doing this. I feel called to it. I'm driven towards it. That's what I'm going to do. He just like, yeah, everyone did it. We did it, did our time. And that was it. So he was a great example to me though, knowing that he had served. Um, and also just the kind of man that he was exemplified everything to me with that. I feel like the army can and should be, or the military in general, my great grandfather as well on my mom's side, he served in World War One, and it was really cool. He was over in France as well. Didn't see a lot of fighting, but have some really cool pictures from when he was boxing back then and picture of him cleaning his rifle. Just some really neat things. Again, I was too young to really ever talk to him about it. But from what I saw, I mean, he's again, he signed the dotted line, you know, put his life on the line, went and, and served his country. So that was the examples I had growing up. On my dad's side, I had an uncle who served, but because he was actually active duty, I hardly ever saw him. So I didn't really know much about that from him. It was more others that I saw and that I became involved with and got to know over the years that gave me more information I learned more from. So it wasn't necessarily a huge military family. It wasn't this tradition of everyone, every man, every whatever joins. It was more there was a lot of support. But it wasn't necessarily the thing everyone did. In fact, I'm the only one of my siblings that have joined. My daughter has since then. In our family, I feel like we've kind of started something new. My son wants to join and others have looked at it like, hey, I think I want to do that. I think it's something cool that we've started in our family. I need to ask, do you have concerns about your children joining the military? Is it scary to think of them joining the military or not really? Um, I know there's a lot of people who would say they do have concerns and they have specific reasons why, and I can't stand this. And they're going to poke you with this and make you do this and make you watch this and learn this and be okay with this. I get it. Every institution, every company, every organization, every family has its own dysfunctions, has its own rules and regulations and all these things. However, if I look at the big picture, first of all, if they don't, who? Someone's got to step up, right? We have some potentially, you know, existential threats coming from countries and regions that we need to be prepared for. And someone's got to step up and do it. The other thing too that's interesting is, is as much as you're seeing in the news, hey, there's a problem here because the Navy's doing this and the Army's doing this and the Marines are being soft about this. There's also a lot of really hard charging, hardworking good people doing the right thing for the right reasons. And so for me, when I see that, when I've been a part of that, also, how do you change something? You can't really change it from the outside. You got to change it from the inside, or at least set a standard or an example of who you are and what you want or expect. Otherwise, nothing's going to change. And the other thing too is I joined during the Obama presidency, and some of the things were a little bit different than when President Trump came into office. There were some changes and then I've seen some of those changes reverse again. If you want to find fault, if you want to find things to be frustrated about, you absolutely can. There's no question. But if you want to see it for what it is, for the opportunity, you don't have to overlook. There's going to be some compromises. Then you go into it that way. So with my daughter, for example, when she joined. What did she join, Ray? So she joined the National Guard. She originally was living in Tennessee with my parents right after high school. She joined there and she's since now transferred to the Utah National Guard. 
And going in, though, I was able to prepare her and help her realize that, hey, here's some things you need to understand. Here's some some cultural things in the Army. Here's some things from boot camp, from AIT, so your advanced individual training, your job skill. And even when she got back, being in personnel, I understood paperwork, I understood processes, and she could have had situations like many have had where they're like, oh, I just can't stand it. It's so hard to do this. It's hard to do this. Why are they doing this? I've been able to help her kind of bridge some of those gaps because I have experience, because I've done it long enough. And so I feel like for my kids, I have no problem if they join, but I want them to make sure they have a purpose. There's multiple reasons people join the military. One, they're trying to escape something, trying to get out of a bad family, bad, bad town. I've was- talked to somebody about that once before on a podcast episode. And he said when he joined the military, it was the first time that he had a roof over his head and food in his belly every day. 100%. So there are those that try to escape. Well, and in some cases, there's escaping to get away from things. And then there's, I want a better life. I'm going to do this because I'm watching what happens here if I stay here. That to me is almost a conscious decision of I want to do more than what my family, friends, my community is doing. And then there's the other ones that go, you know what? I have a purpose in life that I want to fulfill, or I have a dream, I have a vision, I have whatever you want to call it. I have goals. And I see the military as part of that process. I see it as a great opportunity. So for my daughter, she knew she was going to go to college, but the army for her was something that was kind of in her blood from growing up. She, you know, wanted to be, she's a military police in in the army. She's also going to reclass to combat medics. She always loved medical things. She loves the structure, loves the discipline, the fact that she gets to shoot guns and she gets to do medical things and all kinds of other stuff. But it's paying 100% for her college as well as other benefits. It's provided a great opportunity for her and her life. And that's the thing I've told my son, who's 17 going into his senior year. Here's some important things and milestones and things you need to be aware of coming up in life. Eventually, you'll get married. Health benefits, education, also are you learning job skills? Which way are you learning these skills? Well, you could, for example, join the army. There's lots of skills you could choose and they'll pay you to learn, pay you to be in doing it, that then translate to the civilian world. Not always, but and I also did the thing too, is I tell my kids, and it's this way with anything in life. It's what you make it, number one. And two, you have to go out and figure it out and make it work for yourself. You can't wait. Like one of my church leaders said, act for yourself, don't be acted upon. So some of my experiences in the military and probably get into, and in particular, there's one school I wanted to get to. I mean, to me, I just felt like I wanted to be patriotic, I want to jump out of airplanes, and I want to go airborne, I want to do all this stuff. And I was told as a reservist, it's not going to happen. So there's got to be a way. I call the schoolhouse. Hey, do you allow reservists in your school? Yeah, we do. Okay, so you can go. You're just telling me I can't go. I said, what would it take to get there? Oh, we have to do this, this, and this. Okay, I'm going to meet every one of those, and I'm going to do that. I'm going to overcome some of these adversity and these challenges of people saying no. Seven years later, I was able to do it. Um, I mean, it's a longer story than that. But what I try and put forward to my kids that if you want it bad enough, you'll do what it takes to get there. Doesn't mean it'll be easy. And it doesn't mean you won't have issues. There's no question I have faced and dealt with people who feel completely different than I do politically in the military. There are some who feel very differently religiously, morally, ethically, at least though, generally speaking, and not in every case, we were in the same uniform with the same branch on our chest. 
and we're fighting the same fight and the same mission. Sometimes that can be a hindrance, and I'm seeing some of that right now. However, it's what you make it. Are you willing to use that as an excuse to keep you back? Or are you going to see that for what it is, compartmentalize it, and keep doing your thing to improve yourself? Let's talk about your journey then. Why did you join the military? What did you join? What were some of your experiences? What did you learn? That's a bunch right there. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, and because I'm still in, I'm still learning and still having experiences. So it was something I always wanted to do. I was the guy in high school, you know, in my senior year that didn't have the best grades, but I was really fit. I was an athlete. I wasn't dumb, but I didn't apply myself, as my mom would say, um, with my schoolwork. And so I was kind of the perfect candidate for the military. However, being growing up as a Mormon boy, I didn't know that there was a way to go on an LDS mission and join the army at the same time. I know now that that's totally doable, but I had no idea then. I also thought it was just active duty. That just no matter what you did, you went and you're gone and you're gone for years and you came back. I didn't know there were reserves and guard and any of that stuff. So I just kind of put that aside, went on a mission to England, came back, started doing my thing, going to school, got married, having kids. And then in 2008, was working, um, lost a job. The economy was struggling with everything going on then. And I happened upon meeting an army recruiter who gave me a t-shirt. And I came home one day and said to my wife, well, I could always join the army. And she said, okay. Really? I'm 32. We have four kids. She's pregnant with number five. And I'm like, wait, what? And she had just told me that she had had a dream a few nights before that. And, and in her dream, she felt impressed that someone spoke to her and said, if I would be gone for a while with the military, that she'd be okay. I had no idea until she told me that. I'm like, oh. What is so the, the next age day, cap on that, Ray? At, when I joined in 2009, the, let's see, I was at 32. I think the age cap was... You could be up to 30. I want to, I want to say it was up to 34. I did not an age know that. Waiver. Yeah. With, with, with that, without an age waiver, I think you could be up to 38 with an age waiver, meaning they'd have to sign and you have to be healthy and pass some tests. And then if you had certain skills, certain languages, certain professions, you could be up to 42 and it changes. Um, I think now it's definitely lower than that. But so yeah, 32, go to the recruiter's office. I have a degree. Okay, I want to join the army, but I can't go full-time because I have a family and I couldn't afford the full-time pay in the army. So I, you know, I need to do the reserves. I hear that's a good option. I had no idea that there was a National Guard, that that, that was a different thing. So I'm just moving full steam ahead with this. Go and take the test, you know, known as the ADSFAB, which is an aptitude test, basically. Like, hey, are you smart? Is it in these different subjects? Yeah. Electric, you know, electronics and plumbing and problem solving and reading comprehension and math and other things. And it gives you overall scores and it tells you, okay, here are all the jobs that you can do. I took my test and he said, hey, uh, so you could pretty much choose anything here. Because I did fairly well, but I went in at 32. I had a degree, so I'd been through college. So it wasn't that hard for me. And talked to my wife, said, well, we can do this. She said, all right, let's do it. So I picked human resources mainly because it would leave sooner. I would go to basic training in, in um, like April. This was January. So as quick as I could get out. So for me joining, it was just, I felt like that was the right thing to do. I felt like it would be an opportunity. Uh, the health benefits were really, really good. And so I needed that for my family. It would help pay, finish paying for my master's degree. So I looked at it at first as the benefits available. 
if I joined, okay, yeah, so I was going to be gone for two months for basic training or 10 weeks and then another almost 10 weeks for my advanced individual training. Okay, got it. I mean, it's going to be gone for quite a while. But you were looking at this is a great way to take care of my family. Sure. Oh, absolutely. And so for me, it was not an easy decision, but it was a decision we decided, okay, yeah, this is right for our family. And very quickly, though, getting to basic training, I just fell in love with the Army lifestyle. Basic training is a game. It is not the same. It is not the same as the regular reserves, guard, active duty. It is totally different. However, you still get the structure, the discipline, the skills. But for me, basic training was more of a game because, I mean, I wasn't in the greatest shape when I got there, but I got into great shape. So that wasn't a big deal. But I already knew how to shoot. I knew how to tear down and build M16s, AR-15s are almost identical. That was easy. I knew how to camp. I knew how to work a compass. So land navigation was simple. That was fun for me because I already knew, I knew a lot of these skills. These weren't new things for me. And so it was fun. I kind of excelled through that, excelled through my advanced individual training again, because I was used to researching and used a computer and regulations. And just, I knew how to work in that environment and it became a lot of fun. So I get home, get in. So I'm in the reserves, get to my unit and just immediately start diving in and I could take responsibilities again, being 32 by this point I had number five. So I had a big family. So I had more responsibilities, but I had more experience than my rank normally would, would have, which allowed me to excel and to take up, get opportunities and to be noticed so that I could be put in front of the right people. So I got chances to, because of my jujitsu background, start teaching army combatives. And a lot of it is jujitsu based, grappling based. And so I got to know the right guys and get certified. And in fact, at one point I was getting ready to head to Fort Benning, Georgia for a level three, a month long course. And someone looked at my orders and said, how did you get orders for this, this class in your job skill? Like there's no way you should be going to this course, but again, you keep your nose clean. You get to know the right people. You work hard and you get what you deserve. And the right people took notice and signed the right things and approved the right things. And I was able to get there. So that's kind of the journey into it and into some of my experiences with the Army. Remind me a couple of the questions you would ask. Well, I want to stop and ask a question that I'm confused about. And I've even asked my husband. His dad is a colonel in the Army, and he's really not sure. What is the difference between the Guard and the Reserves? That is so confusing to me. Okay. It is confusing to you. Well, this will make it really easy. Okay. The Army has the, the regular Army. Active duty, we've got guys on bases all over the country and the world. Now, attached to the big army are the army reserves. These are your part-time guys that are like in Utah. We've got thousands of them that show up every weekend, do two weeks in the summer. And like when I went to Iraq, we were replacing an active duty unit. Actually, I take that back. We were replacing a reserve unit. They had replaced an active duty unit. We basically mirror exactly what they do. Job skill, schooling, Everything is pretty much the same. Our funding comes from the same place. Our orders come from the same place generally. So to most people, the uniforms, the gear, everything will look identical. They wouldn't notice a difference other than one is living on a base, doing it full-time, and the other one's part-time. Now, there can be some differences as far as what the people look like. There's some advantages to being in the reserves, disadvantages. That's probably a different topic, but that's the reserves. The National Guard is almost identical to the reserves. However, their commander in chief 
is the state governor. So where our commander in chief is the president of the United States, their commander in chief is the governor mm. of the state. And their funding comes from the state. So now, even though that's the case, over time, they realized, hey, having a strong National Guard you know, around the country not only helps with disasters and issues in, in state individual states, but they are also an asset to the regular army. And so what you would see then, like a basic training, when I went to, you know, I would have guys going to regular army, reserves, and National Guard. Wearing the same uniform, doing the same job skills. My daughter's unit does the same, uses the same field manuals, same regulations, same tasks, same way of doing it that I do when it comes to first aid, when it comes to combatives training, land navigation, uh, finances, all that. It's just that theirs all runs through the state and what I do runs federally. That makes sense. I figured I can't be the only one who doesn't understand the difference. (laughs) To most people, it looks the same. Only difference being obviously... You have to get forms and there has to, there's a process. You can't just transfer from one to the other. You, you can, but it takes a process. Okay. Federal into state uh, and vice versa there. But the other thing that happened is the reserves had a lot more to do with over the last 20 years, because it used to be big army had all of this. Reserves had all the same stuff and guard had all the same stuff. What they started to do when they started using the guard and reserve forces to supplement and replace and relieve active duty units in combat, they started to separate things. They said to the National Guard, hey, we're gonna have you guys focus on more of the combat arms, artillery, infantry, a lot of those tasks, and reserves, we're gonna have you focus more on the support, finance, HR, engineering, there's a lot of medical, so on and so forth. There's a lot more than that. And so you weren't necessarily having it doubled up, instead you were having kind of splitting some of the duties. Now, the Guard still has all of that, the reserves still have all of that, but not as much. So you don't have as much duplication. So there's strength in each one can support individually and collectively the big army. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes a lot of sense. You mentioned Iraq. Yeah. When were you in Iraq? My unit deployed to Iraq in 2011. Tell me yeah. about your experience there. So unfortunately, we were not there as long as we had hoped. You wanted uh, to be there longer? Yeah. You were disappointed? No. So it's funny. Once you put the uniform on, you start training and you're like, put me in coach. Like everything I'm doing has prepared me for this moment. And we start training in what we call pre-mo- you know, pre-mobilization training. And they refresh you on your shooting and in your advanced rifle marksmanship and land navigation, all these different things. So you're getting ready to go over for the big show. And some people didn't want to go. Some people were worried, nervous. Now, I'm also in, in human resources our company was an HR company. We weren't going over as combat arms. We weren't necessarily going to be in the fight, but we're going to a combat zone. The base we went to in Iraq and Balad, people said, oh yeah, it's cushy. It's got a movie theater. It's got a pool. Okay. Those things were, were all closed up and we were getting attacked almost every day. And some of them were getting pretty close. So I don't know. I mean, when you're on a Skype call with your wife and all of a sudden she hears a boom and the signal's lost, you say, I got to go. And you close the laptop. That's not like you're going down the street to the park. In 2011, we had the drawdown happening. President Obama was having all the troops pull out, but we were still getting send-offs every, you know, almost every day with attacks, rocket and mortar attacks. So we were the last human resources company in Iraq. So we oversaw a lot of the coming and going of a lot of the reserve forces, postal platoons, Air Force, you know, they were kind of involved as well. A lot of their human resources needs. That's what we did. And then we got over there in, let's see. 
deployment started technically in July. We got into Iraq. We went to Kuwait. Then we were into Iraq in August. Yeah, the hottest time to be there was Ugh, miserable. So hot. But we ended up pulling out of Iraq because of the drawdown. Uh, when did we leave? November time. And then we were in Kuwait for a little while too. So unfortunately, it turned out to only be more of a six-month deployment. But when we found out that there may be a chance we could extend or attach to someone else and stay out there, at first, I'm like, put me in. I'll stay. I mean, I came here to do this. I want to do my time. But I was also the guy that kept trying to tell my commander, hey, could you get me in touch with those guys next door that are leaving the wire, going outside the fence and going on patrols because I want to go with them? Why? Because I wanted to. I mean, you're there. I think there's something instinctual in men, maybe some women. Did you get no, to go outside? Oh, no, we did got cut short and all that. And he, I, I got to the point with, he's like, you know what? Okay. I'll talk to him. And then things changed and where well, I wasn't able to, but I think there's something, I don't know, that, at least for me, I wanted to prove that I could step up to the challenge that all this training I'd received that I could do it, that I could make it happen. So I think that's really my why there. And just, again, there was something about it inside that was growing up playing army in the backyard. Like you want, okay, I'm here. It's the big show put me in coach. You know, I want to do this. Were there times over there when you were nervous or scared and how um, was it for your family back home, especially your wife? For my wife, there were definitely some moments she was definitely nervous. I don't know if she would say scared, but definitely nervous more than anything. I mean, she, at this point, we had six kids. A lot of work to do at home. Right. So, so for her, she was working harder than I was. There's no question. It was much harder for her than it was for me. Because again, in a way I was doing everything we trained to do. I was having a blast and yet she was home with them. So there were times when I couldn't talk to her when it was hard for her. Probably the hardest part is the emotional disconnect because being over there, I kind of emotionally shut down and was just ingrained and here's what I'm doing. Here's my job. And thinking army it was hard to detach from that and really get back to if I'm going to call or email, get more emotional with her or at least not emotional, but at least to let my guard down, be vulnerable, and really try and stay connected. So that was probably the hardest part for her was just feeling like I wasn't really available for quite a while. What has the military taught you? What lessons have you learned? Um, I'd say I've learned a lot of things, but more than anything, I would say it's reinforced a lot of the lessons I've already learned. Well, I'm one that I spent two years on a Mormon mission in England. So I got a chance to lead and be led, got a chance to get out and communicate with lots of different kinds of people, experience new things in business. I have led teams. I've developed product lines. I've traveled to Japan and Turkey and um, China, and I had worked with distributors and dealers and had lots of interactions leading up to this point. Joining, I mean, I certainly learned more about how to shoot guns, got better at some of those tasks. Some of the things that I did, it reinforced what I knew how to do already. There, Again, there were certain tasks that I learned or gained new skills um, that I got a lot better at. I think overall, the biggest, the most important thing, and this is what I tell my kids, the most important thing that I learned and continue to learn from the Army, from the military in general, is that if you want it bad enough, you have to work your behind off and you have to make it happen. And don't let anyone tell you that you can't. Because there's rarely anything that I've seen in the army, for example, that you couldn't do if you wanted to bad enough. You will often be told no. Usually the no is because someone doesn't want to do their job. Someone doesn't want to step up and 
go the extra mile and do something for you or to help you out or, or to research something. That's the, the probably the biggest thing is don't take no for an answer. And your career is your own. If you want it, you've got to go out and, and get it. I would have never had the chance to go to airborne school, jump out of planes, be in a special operations unit out of Korea. If I just sat back waiting for them to tell me, okay, now go to this school, now do this, now do this. That would have never happened. But instead, I was proactive. And I decided, okay, I want this. I want this. I want this. I want to do more. I want to be more. And like the school I talked about in our level three, the Army Combative School in Fort Banning, that was only months before we deployed, pushed hard to get to that school. And then networked while I was there and got to know people. And though, so it benefited me when I was in Iraq. And I got to teach a lot of combatives in Iraq and in Kuwait. And then when I came back, was able to parlay that into relationships that helped me get to the special operations unit in Korea. Well, that meant instead of being around regular reservists, I got to be in a special position where I could actually spend time with active duty guys. And it was a joint environment. So I got to spend time around Green Berets and SEALs and Rangers and Marine Recon guys. And you're spending time around leaders that have spent time in combat. These are non-commissioned officer and officer leaders that have hardened battle-ready guys and gals, some cases, that have learned those lessons from war and are now, you're seeing leadership now in a way you've never seen it because they've lived it, they've done it, and they were able to apply those things into what they're doing. And you got to sit and kind of learn from them and sit with a guy, you know, all night on a shift from a guy that was there during the Osama bin Laden raid and learn from him, what tactics did you guys do or, or employ, or did you, what did you learn or what did you develop in order to make that successful? And again, learn those skills. Most of it was teamwork, being willing to be humble and being willing to be wrong and take other people's ideas and suggestions and put them together to make the best idea and to be able to take a step back and look at the bigger picture. That's the thing that gets people fouled up right now. Why would my kid, why should I have my kid join the military? Okay, take a step back. I see what you see on social media and some of the things I don't like. However, if you take a step back and detach, just like you would in battle, if you really want to know where the fire's coming from, you've got to take a step back and think for a moment before just acting so that you're acting properly and maybe you've got to retreat. Maybe you've got to move forward. Maybe you've got to move to the side. Well, if you're just in there and just pulling the trigger, you're not going to be able to detach and be able to see where am I, what's going on, how do we best approach this so we can make a good decision. So that army decision-making process, there's a whole process to it, but really watching guys in action make those decisions, taking the best people around them, get as much advice as they can or get as much info, and then in turn make the best decision you can. And then also being able to make that decision and realize hey, if this wasn't the best way forward, or hey, we need to make some decisions or changes here to not die on our sword. I watched that too. I've watched guys go, we're doing this no matter what. Well, one of the great things in the military is you can immediately put that into action. If you're doing training, you're doing um, like close quarter combat training. So when you see guys stacked up on a door and going into a room, or they're going in and clear a room, clear a house. Well, you want to see leadership up front you put someone in charge of four people, you have them go into a house and clear the house and see if their plan worked or not. Because either everyone's going to die, you're going to have casualties, or it's going to be successful. But what you learn quickly is, hey, maybe I need to take what these other people are telling me, take as much info as we have, take a step back and go, what's the best call? Okay, let's do it this way. Rather than just doing it my way. 
And due to my way, gets everyone killed in training. So on a big picture, you can see the same thing, which allows you then to see, are your upper level leaders kind of following what they preach or doing this? Or are they missing some things? One of the things I had was one of the generals when I was over in Korea a couple of years ago, pulled me aside and said, hey, you've been with this command you know, longer than most of us, which is true. I'd been with my unit of Special Operations Command Korea. And I'd been with those guys since about 2000, technically 2012, my first time over there training was in uh, spring of 2013. So this was probably eight or nine years into me being there. And I was over there in Korea and the general pulled me aside. This is the guy that everyone looks to. And he said, Griffin, I know you've been here longer than almost anyone. What do you think we're doing well? And what can we improve from your perspective as the reservists that come over here? How can we, how can we better utilize you guys? That was the first time in all those years that I was asked that. There were lower level guys that we would have communications with and try and improve things and change things and update things. It was the first time that he wanted to hear it directly. What I found was that immediately made some changes because he was able to say, hey, why have these changes that have been requested or been put into proposals never been brought forward? Because they were stopped at lower levels. Another big lesson was you never know who you're working and training with. Not only do you need to be humble and take ideas, but you never know that the next guy, the guy next to you, what skills they have. When I went to basic training, and this isn't to toot my own horn, but when I joined in 2009, I had been training in jujitsu for over 10 years. And I was pretty good at what I did. When I got to basic training, they were going to teach us combatives. There's going to be a few days, you know, on the grass, learning, basically learning submissions and grappling, basically learning jujitsu. And what I realized quickly was, first of all, the drill sergeants didn't really know what they were doing. They knew a little bit, but not very much. And it's okay. They're doing the best they could. But I kept my mouth shut. And when the time was right, I was able to, hey, I can help with this. And what I found was that then they respected that I wasn't, hey, I know what I'm doing better than you. It was just, hey, guys, here's a, not to the drill sergeant, but some guys in our own, in our bay where we're staying. Hey, guys, if you don't want to get hurt, try this. Let's, let me sharpen. Let me help you with this detail. Well, drill sergeant walks in and goes, what the heck's going on? We're all standing at parade rest. I'm like, drill sergeant, I've been doing this for over 10 years just helping them be safe about it um, so that when it's time to train that these guys do well in front of the whole company. And he kind of looked at me, asked me a couple of questions, said, all right, I didn't see anything. But then three weeks later, when we're out in front of everyone and he's trying to remember one of these techniques, he's like, Griffin, where are you? Come here. Came up and said, teach everyone this. So I found that that was an awesome experience to me. The first of all, drill sergeant was humble enough to ask me to show something, but I also put myself in a position that I didn't show off as the cocky guy that I knew everything here. I know more than you. Instead, it was, hey, I'm here to help. Fast forwarding that to what I saw and still see in Korea is when you have leaders that are willing to, to look to your left and right, that's one of the big advantages of the reserves too. Who has experience that others don't? Who has experience with Excel because, hey, maybe you're a business guy and you're really good at spreadsheets. And in the army, maybe guys just haven't learned that. And you could be a force multiplier and helping in the middle of the night with a spreadsheet for the general that has to be briefed at 6 a.m. And this guy's been up all day trying to figure this out. And it's a few little tweaks and you can help him out. That actually happened. And then other things like that, you just don't know. You don't know the guy to your left, how capable they are and what they can add to the team and what they can add to the unit and what they can bring. The other thing I found with that too, another thing I've learned is to be able to respect other cultures, families, ethnicities, race, color, creed, whatever you want to describe it. But at one point in my section, when I was in Korea this couple of years ago, um, 
I was the only white guy. Everyone else, lots of different colors, different backgrounds, religious beliefs, political beliefs, but it was awesome. I learned about them, their cultures, their backgrounds, their families. They learned about me. And it was, it was very humbling to me because a lot of people have wanted to show division in our nation. Mm-hmm. It drives me nuts because I'm like, you know what? There's no big, bigger melting pot than the military. Because at the end of the day, I don't care if you're black, white, any color. I don't care what you are. If I can trust you and if you know your job and you can trust me, that's all that matters. Because we have a job to do when it when it really matters. If I can rely on you and we can together accomplish the mission, that is the only thing that matters. At the end of the day, we still have the same thing. It's still name and our names are different, our last names, but the US Army or US Air Force or US Navy is still the same. We still serve the same country. And so that has been another big thing I've learned is that it's a lot better than people realize. There's a lot less division than I feel like social media and the media wants us to think. My husband it, always says that the division the news is putting out there, it's what gets them the audience. Sure. They need people at each other's throats to make money. Whereas, generally speaking, that's not happening. I definitely want to move over into jujitsu. Yeah. But before we do, I don't know if you've seen in the headlines the last few weeks about army enlistment and how they are falling short. In fact, I saw something to the effect that they were going to have a basic training for those who didn't qualify for basic training to get them into basic training. Why do you think we are falling short of enlistment goals? And is that something that we need to worry about as far as national security? Is that something to be concerned about? So, yes, I actually do know why, only because I asked some questions. I've spent some time with recruiters, regular Army, Reserve, and National Guard recruiters. There's a couple things happening. One, you have parents like, there's no way my kid, you know, my son Johnny's going to join the Army when they're woke, and he's going to get in, and instead of learning how to fight, they're going to learn how to be inclusive and equal. Okay, I got it. I get it. That's what you see in the headlines. Yeah, there is some of that. But generally, when everyone's going and you're all running and you're in the mud or sand, no one really cares. It has a way of weeding itself out. Yes, there are potential issues. And every once in a while, I've seen problems. And there's people who get offended and who get nervous or scared and want to feel safe because someone voted for someone that they didn't vote for. So therefore, they think they're dangerous. Okay, I've seen it. I've heard it. But those are small. But that's a real problem. You've got parents or people seeing this going, I don't want to be part of this. Even though as much as you try and steer a really like take an aircraft carrier, how long does it take to turn an aircraft carrier around? Long time. You know, the, the military is on a speedboat. You can't just turn it on a dime. It takes a while. And what happens as that starts to turn? Well, someone else comes in office and it kind of turns back. So, I mean, kind of like the government in general, yes, there's things, flash things here and there that you'll see like, oh my gosh, that's a problem. But generally speaking, most of what we have has not changed too much as far as the actual government. I mean, again, you have people yelling, screaming about different policies and things they want to do. And yes, sometimes things happen we like or don't. But generally speaking, it keeps moving forward. So that's one thing to think about. But here, another the real big problem, though, two things there are bigger problems than that. Health, meaning these kids are sitting down playing video games and... They're eating junk food and they're drinking energy drinks 
I saw you drinking an energy drink there. Well, okay. So Jocko. this energy drink is a Jocko. Yeah, this is. Not is it the Travis Mills one. one? Have you tried the Travis Mills oh, one? Yes, I actually have that in my, yeah, yeah. The okay. Whoopi Watermelon. This is actually um, Dave Burke's signature. This is uh, Afterburner Orange. So if the, all the energy drinks, this is the only ones that I'll drink that I sell because they're actually healthy for you. They're more brain food than anything. Yeah, this is all I'll drink. Approved by Navy SEALs and other guys. So <laughs> there, there you go. Um, but anyways, they're not taking care of their bodies. They get to the screening. They're overweight. They're out of shape. They're broken. They've had problems. I remember even in basic training, the amount of people that had stress fractures. And the drill sergeant's like, every time. If you're a video gamer drinking energy drinks, you're not eating properly, eating potato chips, your body is going to break when you put it under stress. That's just how it's going to happen. Whereas some of you Southern guys, corn fed and, you know, potatoes and steak and eggs and whatever, drinking milk your whole life, you come in, that's how I was, with people not joining. And what's actually going to be a danger to our society is that if a boy or girl shows up and they start getting asked screening questions, and in those screening questions, words like Zoloft, Wellbutrin, antidepressant, anxiety, depression, any of those words come up, they're out. Yeah, they won't even... let you be on anxiety medication? No, because think about the liability that person is. Now, two things to that. That's think hard about... though, Ray, because that's genetic in my family as well. Like, I'm on anxiety medication. My yeah. kids are, my husband is, my parents were. It's genetic. So there's a couple things to that. The first one is the vast majority, most likely, are on these medications because some doctor said to be on them. And when we were kids, that was called being a teenager is hard. Yeah. Life sucks sometimes. Um, rejection is real. We all know that with as parents of teenagers that their right. life always sucks, right? But, but, but the thing is, our life sucked. Yeah. Junior high is the worst. It's the worst. And high school's not much better. No. But what do parents do now? Parents try to shield their kids from all of this. And then what do you have happening? They get their 18, 19, 20, 21. They fail at college. They're struggling. They're living at home. They can't. They have anxiety. They just They just can't do it. That's because they haven't been taught how to do hard things, and then you can learn from failure. And they haven't been allowed to fail. And so these kids show up to these recruiters, and that's the biggest problem. Yes, there are some specifically probably need to be on them. However, it's amazing to watch what hard work and focus and just getting out there can do for people that have anxiety or depression, that it just, the way that that can help the mind doesn't mean it fixes everyone. I totally get it. But that's one of the biggest issues. They said, all these people, these kids come in within a few questions like, oh yeah, I've got anxiety. Okay, probably not. It's probably called being a teenager and the life is hard. High school's hard. You're having to navigate something really, really hard. But the moment that they find out they're on medications, they look at them and go, well, we can't take you because the liability that that person is in high stress situations. Because in basic training, you don't get your medication. You know, AIT, that's just not an option. If you have to be on medications, you're medically screened out. Some legitimately may have to be on it, and it is what it is. But most, again, probably don't. We are definitely over-medicating our kids in the name of trying to protect them and help them have great experiences versus it needs to be hard. That's one of the biggest issues that they're having right now is these kids show up and they can't, they can't do it. Not to mention, they get there to basic training and they're failing because it's the first time they've been told no, first time they've been yelled at, first time they've faced any kind of adversity and challenge, and they crumble. My daughter watched it. They absolutely crumble at the first sign of adversity when it's basic training. That's what you're supposed to go through, hard times together as a team 
make a very, very lethal and capable team able to go and fight and defend the nation and defend freedom elsewhere. Anyway. That's really interesting. I had no clue. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your yeah. jujitsu. When did your love of that begin? And what has your journey sure. been like with that? Yeah. I started training back in 1999. Before then, back in about 95, well, growing up, I always loved martial arts. I always loved, I mean, the Karate Kid. I saw Karate Kid 2 in the theaters. Um, I love the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. We're always trying to recreate that at home. Do you watch Cobra Kai? So I've seen it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of it's fun. cheesy goodness, right? It is. I think I'm behind a season or two, but I at least saw the first one. I think first okay. and second, I really liked it. And it just brought a lot of childhood memories back. But yeah, I was that kid that loved Karate Kid and was reading books. Whatever I could get my hands on, I was trying, practicing. A few friends that would learn, learning any kind of martial art. Well, my grandpa, before he had passed away, made me promise because he was he loved martial arts and loved what it provided people and made me promise that I would train and learn something and spend a long time doing it. After my LDS mission, came back, moved to Utah and found a place that was teaching Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, also known as Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, which is the family that helped establish it. From there, met this guy and started training and never looked back. So that's the really short version. But what I found very quickly was the way you, you can hold someone down, the way that you can escape someone pinning you to the ground, someone choking you, someone doing all these different things. In real life situations, I realized, wow, not only does it work, but it's also minimal steps. It's pretty easy to do. And it works against a larger, stronger person. That began a journey in 99 that has not stopped because I saw the effectiveness. I, I really enjoyed it. I loved the family atmosphere, the camaraderie. Um, my jiu-jitsu professor was one of the nicest guys and still to this day is one of my closest friends, still trains. I, I realized what it provided me. It reinforced my beliefs, not just religiously, but morally and ethically, reinforced those, taught me skills in a way to view life and to attack problems that have definitely helped. Jiu-jitsu is all about leverage and efficiency and not attacking something head on, but attacking it at angles and utilizing their energy yielding to that and then utilizing that to either escape, defend, to maintain a dominant position, or ultimately then to be able to do some sort of like choke or arm lock or some sort of submission hold. Through that journey over the years, obviously I got married, had lots of kids. All of my kids train now and we have a jiu-jitsu school here in Orem, Utah, um, Griffin Jiu-Jitsu Academy, and they all help teach. And it's been a lifelong dream. And I was very grateful. My wife is very, very supportive. And back when the time was right, she said, okay, it's time for you to open up a school. And so we took everything we've been teaching in the garage and I've been learning over the years, opened up our school here, and we have regular classes throughout the week for kids and youth and adults. Um, the biggest and the most important thing I think we do is our is our monthly women empowerment courses. I was about to mention that. So that for us, that's my why. Empowering women, young women, kids as well. That's our biggest why. Because in able, in able to really have functioning good quality adults, you need good quality kids and youth to become that. And one of the things is if we can empower them, not just with self-defense, but my wife comes in and helps teachers as well, but being able to help them learn to set boundaries, situational awareness, make eye contact, how to communicate, how to recognize, hey, if something seems weird, it is weird. That's one of my wife's biggest things. We have two, two phrases we tell our kids when they leave the house. A lot of people will say, choose the right, return with honor, whatever it is. In our house, it's trust your gut, because if something seems weird, it is weird. And then we have another saying that General Mattis said, 
you know, be polite, be professional, but always have a plan to kill everybody you meet. <laughs> I didn't know he said that. <laughs> yes. And it's just, it falls right in line. So in our family. Say that one more time, Ray. So he said, be polite, be professional, but have a plan to kill everybody you meet. <laughs> if you do that, you're good. So that's great. I need yeah. to put that on Instagram. <laughs> I love it. There's the, somewhere I've got, I've ever posted it somewhere on Instagram. I can oh, it's probably from a year or two ago, but anyways, <laughs> that for us has been our biggest joy, our biggest challenge, our biggest adventure and calling. I feel like is empowering women. We recently had um, a family that came in, they're doing like a, a sister's day with mom and they played some tennis in the morning. They came in in the afternoon and trained with us for a couple hours. And yeah, we'll do small groups as well. Um, we'll do young women and young men, uh, church groups. We'll bring them in and do kind of an introductional self-defense class. And because so my wife, um, I'm not sure how well you know her background. But she's a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, child pornography, physical and emotional abuse. Um, she was held at gunpoint by her father, stalked by her father. Wow. You name it. But she's a survivor. She's not a victim. She's a survivor. She's broken a chain in a cycle. She's amazing. She's the one that first talks and tells these women, here's, here's my background. Here's what it takes day to day so that we can avoid, because it's the statistics are horrible. One in four women will be attacked or assaulted. One in nine men, young men, will be assaulted or attacked as well. So it doesn't necessarily mean that guys are, are impervious to this, but certainly the women is where, I mean, having seven daughters statistically it's not in their favor how do we help them not be a statistic so again that's why our women empowerment courses even women that come to our regular jiu-jitsu classes they get special attention in that this is for them this is why we do and train and teach jiu-jitsu it's for them it's once a month for this so normally we do them once a month usually the second saturday of the month we took okay. the summer off because everyone's traveling we'll start them up again in september now Along with that, because a lot of people say, hey, I would love to do it, but I can't. Um, I was talking to you about this a few weeks ago. We've recently started to launch an online self-defense coaching program. So what's really cool about that is that you can, for 16 weeks, we have multiple levels depending upon how much support you want. But our top program, you get 16 weeks. Each week you get a new video. So the first week will be situational awareness eye contact, communication, some of these basics, how you stand, body position, how you walk into a room. And then the, at the end of the week, your homework is you go into Walmart or you go somewhere and you practice eye contact, saying hi to people, being aware where the exits. Are you walking in with your phone in your hand? Or are you walking in aware of what's going on? Not on your phone all the time, which is a danger because you're not paying attention to what's around <laughs> you. Correct. And then each week will then be standing self-defense. Okay, someone walks up to you. How do you stand? How do you maintain your base? What if they grab your arm? Eventually, the next week, what if they're hugging you? Uh, and then what they're pinned to the ground. And then each week builds on that. And then if you choose, based on the package, you can get one-on-one -on -one coaching. So you can have daily access to me by text. Hey, I have a question about this. What about this? Um, you can have weekly video conferences with me to be able to, hey, let me see what you're doing. Okay, let's refine that technique a little bit. Because some people don't live locally. Or some do, but they just don't have the time to come in. But now they can train at home with the family, with friends and get the same type of training we're doing here and still have act. Cause the hardest thing, here's a video, good luck. With this program, they get all of that. They get access to me and to my wife and the ability to make sure that they are getting that, that reinforcement and that coaching that they're actually doing it properly. So I love that. 
Yeah, it's pretty exciting. We're just now, like everything's in place to start launching it. So you may see an email actually in the next day or two come out for the program. That we do an online application. We want to make sure that they, they're a good fit for the program. There's no major health issues that potentially get them hurt. But for the most part, I don't see any reason anyone, if they're not dedicated enough and want it bad enough, can do it. I love that. That's something that I need to do with my two daughters. Yes. And, and that's exactly why we have it. Because again, you guys may not be able to make it. One day for three hours on a Saturday is not enough. It's enough to get a spark and to maybe learn one thing. But one of the cool things with online, it'll be through a Zoom platform. So you'll have access to the recordings. You'll have a link and you'll be able to have kind of, you'll be able to download them and have and definitely have access. I don't want to forget to ask you later. Okay. Tell everyone where to go for that. The best way is to go to Instagram or Facebook. Go to my, my Facebook account is Ray Griffin on Facebook or Griffin Jiu-Jitsu Academy. Ray Griffin, you'll see posts about it. You'll also see on my Griff Tactical. So if you search Ray Griffin or Griff Tactical on Instagram, you're going to see posts about it. And in fact, it'll say, hey, if you want this kind of coaching, DM me, I'm ready. That will start the process. You can also email me at the self-defense coach, the self-defense coach at Gmail. And if you email that, I'll send you the online application. You can fill that out and we can get you going there too. I'll make sure I put all of this in the show notes for everyone okay. as well. Okay. Um, okay. Our soon, our website, griffinjujitsu.com, will have this information as well, kind of a landing page that will give some brief information and they can put their info in there and get and get the application. But for now, that email is probably the best way, followed by DMing me through Instagram or Facebook. Excellent. Yeah. Well, I met Ray through a small group here in Utah, and I'm I'm sure it's probably the same in other places as well. I find that those who love America, who are patriotic, who are involved with the military, tend to meet each other. I met Ray at a well through a wonderful organization follow the flag and come to find out that ray also knows somebody else that i know united we march justin meller and then i'm sure you know julia carlson as well oh yeah yes how <laughs> did you get involved in all of these groups and what does it mean to you to be part of these groups who are some of the people that you've met that have impacted you we live in pleasant grove and from our house uh, many years ago we saw this flag hanging up. We're driving up our road. And we're like, what the heck is this flag? And at first I'm like getting defensive. I'm like, who is hanging up a flag? And this better not be some stunt. Which it started off as a stunt the first yes. year. <laughs> Thankfully, kind of in the right way. Yeah, I, I wanted to go up there and find out what was going on here. I want to make sure something wasn't going on weird. Get up there and find out, hey, here's an organization. Here's some people who just wanted to, who love the country, who are patriotic, want to hang a flag, honor the country, honor veterans, first responders, honor everybody, quite frankly. From then forward, we started getting involved and helping with the hanging portion and some of the, you know, setting up flags for funerals and welcome home events, things like that. So that was awesome to be able to be a part of. And then one of those times led us to Gunnison to with United We March and because they marched with one of the big flags in their parade and the gut check. And I got to do the gut check the first year with my son. And that's where I met Justin Miller. He and I, I mean... I would say he's as close, if not in some cases closer, to me than my own brothers. He is such a great man. He is. And we have a very, very strong type friendship. In fact, I'm going to see him this coming weekend. And I just love that guy to death. Literally like family. We've talked about it. We're, we're family. 
you know, whether by blood or something else, we're family. And getting to go down there, going down last year and being a part of that, seeing that community come together. One of the things we miss, Utah County used to have that. Utah County used to have these small communities all kind of came together for the for, for our general purpose. For those who don't know, Ray, tell them what the Gunnison Gut Check is. Yeah. United We March is an organization that is unified in moving forward, not only being patriotic, but supporting um, law enforcement, so first responders and supporting military and veterans and all that. The Gut Check is a yearly event that they hold that is a, there's a 5K involved, but then there's a 16 mile and a 26 mile ruck march. And Justin was inspired by another march that he had done that was a kind of a memorial to the, um, was it the Bataan Death March in Vietnam. And so he he brought this here, was like, okay, I want to organize this march to raise money. And he's given money to some amazing organizations. And I think actually more recently, if not already, he's going to be for one of my favorite organizations from a buddy of mine, Brick Simpson, with Forge Forward. Um, which I was so excited to get those two guys together last year. Again, He'll be coming on my podcast a little later, Brick. Brick is one of my favorite guys too. He's a great friend, good, good guy, doing everything for the right reasons. So anyway, my point is, it's funny, like you said, we all know each other. It all comes together if you're doing the right things. But that's the gut check. And so you pay your money, you register, you get to do the 16 mile ruck march. It's brutal. It's brutal, but it's totally worth it. And the community the night before does a big auction. I know last year I tried to buy a quilt that probably cost 50 bucks to make. It wasn't super, super fancy, but it cost me like, I don't know, $600. But the money went to the organization, went to the charities, went to, so it was totally worth it. It, it didn't matter. It, it was totally worth spending the money because I know where the money's going. So you know, they do an auction, they have a, a, a dinner the night before, they do the gut check in the morning, they have a parade the night before, and they bring this community together in a ways I haven't seen since I was little. This whole community rallies behind the organization, behind the cause, everyone supports. I mean, locally there, there's businesses that are donating time and money and resources, not just for the auction, but in serving. And so for me, going down there, just it's very healing and very inspiring to be a part of that organization. And seeing the way, I mean, Justin is not perfect. You guys have had him on. Um, his story is not perfect. He's been a broken man who is, you know, found redemption. And he's just, he's so inspiring to me. And, and to him, like he's the example of what these kind of towns, these kind of people, when they put their mind to it, what they can overcome and what they can do. And, and the good that they can do for others. So, yeah, that's that's the the the, the United We March and the Gunnison Gut Check, um, which is coming up in September, I think 9th and 10th. Looking forward to being down there for that. Do you share your thoughts about America with your children? Do you think it's important that we talk to our children about this country? Um, yes and yes. So in my house, actually on my house, we fly a six foot by 10 foot flag off our garage including a Texas flag and a come and take it flag from the Alamo because my wife's from Texas. So that's like a, you just fly those flags, but yeah, we, we fly the American flag. We have the American flag outside of our house, more American flags. We have an led flag. We have smaller ones in our house, in our entryway. We have four or five American flags up on the wall. There's a whole My whole family room is basically dedicated to military, to patriotism, 
all those things. The Constitution is up in our house, as well as the Pledge of Allegiance, no, Pledge of Allegiance, Declaration of Independence. I think the pledge is up too. But yes, we're a very patriotic family. And what we talk about with our kids frequently is how much this nation um, has been divinely and was, you know, founded and all the events that lead up to, to our founding of our nation, the how inspired our, our founding fathers were, who they were, imperfect men building something amazing that had never existed. And because of that, we have the blessings we have today. And what that means that we have a responsibility, not just to serve in the military, but, but to all those things that we have to do to serve others and, and, and to look beyond us and our borders to, to help, obviously help ourselves first, but then because we can help others better if we take care of ourselves first. So that's one of the first things that they know from our example is that this is very important to us. Um, the national anthem is a big deal. All things patriotic in our house are a huge deal. Um, my wife helps serve with an organization that does the Patriot Kids Camp. Um, so you get 100 plus kids and next year they're going to go like double or triple the number. And all week long, these kids learn about the country. They learn I about love that. the Constitution. They learn about the Bill of Rights. They learn all kinds of cool things. Um, in fact, we had John Hawkins, who's our locally one of our state representatives. He was there speaking. We had a bald eagle there. But we, they did. I helped a little bit, but my wife and those ladies are awesome. So we're all about that, serving and getting involved. But I was the kind of kid that grew up. I don't remember July 4th that I wasn't singing in some church choir, you know, 50 and 50 United States or some other patriotic. I remember song. that song. I know that song. Yeah. 50 with, you know, 50 exactly. United States. <laughs> only way I can name all the states if I sing it. I couldn't just list them. Are you going to sing it for us right now, Ray? No, no, I'm not. <laughs> no, I'm not. Um, that'd be the, that's the bonus episode. How's that? There you go. That uh, sounds good. Yeah. So for me as a kid growing up, my wife is the same way. And so we just collectively have always been very patriotic and we take it seriously. And now that I'm in the army, it's even more so because now I've actually put my life on the line and, and gone. And I mean, I, September 11th, one of my posts on Instagram and on Facebook was about that and was September 11th, 2011. We were over there in Iraq and we got to, oh, and I gave a talk in church about it, raising the flag up in our company area, saluting the flag on September 11th in honor of those and what September 11th now represents and what that meant to me and to us, even though we technically weren't supposed to be doing that, we did it anyway, because we're like, we don't care, screw it. We're going to do this. It's this important to us in a combat zone. We're here. It's that kind of mentality and actions that we've not pushed, but just fed into our kids that loving your country and serving your country, recognizing that what our country was founded on and the blessing that our country has been to the rest of the world, it is what it is, but it's hard to go anywhere. And I'm talking, I mean, I've been all around the world to not find the influence America has had in the world for better. Going to South Korea every year, you can very quickly see on Google Earth, North Korea versus South Korea. There is a difference, and there's a reason that they have one of the strongest economies in the world. Darkness yeah. in North Korea. Right. And then you see a free people doing a lot of good for the world. It's everywhere. What do we do in Japan? After, I mean, yes, the bombings were horrible, which is another topic. Having been over there and gotten to talk to people, it's very eye-opening and very humbling. But then what did we do? In turn, we, we helped them rebuild. And now they have one of the strongest economies. There's a lot to being patriotic, and we have a big responsibility to our kids to help them understand. Stop just listening to the sound bites. 
but read the history, learn the history, live it, and be proud of what we have. Because what we have has done some amazing things, continues to do. Regardless of the people that come in and try at times to destroy things and try and put things down, it's still the greatest place on earth. And that's the thing, because people will sometimes ask, why do people say bad things? You know, why don't they just move? Well, they threaten to move, they won't move because they know how good they actually have it here. Because you can't complain like this in France. You can't complain like this in other countries because they will put you in jail. As free as some of these countries are, they'll put you in jail or they'll silence you in some way. Agreed. Just how it is. What do you think about the state of America today? Ideally, I'd love to see it really return to conservative values and for people to realize that free agency and freedom mean something and that you can't have security and freedom at the same time. I want to be secure, but I want to be free. Well, which is it? Because if you want security, you're now asking someone else to take care of you, which means you give them your power and money to do that. And they may not do it the way you want it to be done. I'd rather have that free agency and that freedom to be able to do it my way. Though there are things that do worry me about our country, there's some loud voices that scream some very extreme things. They're very loud right now. They are. They are. However, having been all around the country as well, I also see that Generally speaking, most people are good, hardworking, conservative people who understand, who believe in God, who have an understanding of what our nation stands for and still stand behind it. And so, yeah, there are times when it's tough, it's bad, but it goes back to the whole saying, the only thing even leads to flourish is good men to do nothing. If we're willing to stand up, and I think we've we started seeing some of that, if we stand up and not just... Here's my opinion and here's my voice on social media. But then we act. We act around us with our kids. We put out these messages. This is who we are. This is what we believe. And this is what we stand for. I think, I mean, do I think times will still be tough? I think we're still going to have tough times because we work so hard at building during tough times that we've created good and easy times. I'm sure you've seen that cycle, right? Yes. It makes weak men and women which is why you're seeing the part of the problems with the military, people joining, because they're weak. What's going to happen is hard times are going to happen and then it's going to make them hard again. If we can avoid that cycle on a whole, we can do that individually and stay in that working hard, then we won't get to that point of complacency. In our country though, I I don't know. I think we're going to see pockets here and there. I think we're going to see rises and falls. We're going to see cycles. We always have. I know it seems much more you know, specific. Radical. It seems radical to me right now. Yeah. One thing that was interesting though, I noticed this summer versus the last couple of summers. Last year seemed very agitated around July 4th Um, in 2020 and 2021. There was a lot of agitation, a lot of angst. This year seemed a lot more peaceful. This year seemed a lot more, less people at each other's throats and, and a little bit more peaceful doesn't mean there weren't problems in pockets and issues in different places, but generally what I saw was there wasn't as much extremism, as much violence from what I could tell, especially here in Utah, because it was nuts last year. Last year, you could feel it in the air. People were on edge. It didn't have to be that way. In fact, I, well, it's funny, and it kind of goes back to, again, 
people talk about 2020 pandemic COVID. I love the way uh, Pat McNamara, he's a retired Special Forces, Delta Force, Army guy. I don't know him personally, but I've listened to him a lot. Really smart guy, hardworking guy. He talked about being chronication. I totally agree. 2020 was our best year as a family. We got out camping. We had way more time together. We were able to you know, plan and build out this jujitsu school. We we got so much done that year. 2021, you know, as people were starting to come back, oh my gosh, it's been horrible. No, it was great. We had a great time. Things are starting to, you know, if you will, go back to normal. It was always normal for us, but it family first. And what was our family grounded on and founded on? Our belief in God, love of our country, our unity together, and our drive to try and be better, make each other better, and get out and serve. So that never stopped us. So now we're not here going, okay, now what? Now it's like, okay, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing and just look at how do we improve each day. But we can do that in America. Some places you don't have that option. Some places it's just you, you do your job to help eat by some sort of living and hope that you don't get invaded or hope that the government doesn't take everything you have. Here, we have every opportunity. Bray, what does America mean to you? Mm. I think the easy answer is it means everything. But more, that's a very kind of broad answer. But really, though, for what it means is it means freedom and opportunity. It means a protection of our free agency to live the lives we want to live. Thank you for sharing your American story with us. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for listening to another amazing story from a fellow patriot. Be sure to check the show notes for links to this episode's guest. Visit WeThePeopleOurAmericanStory.com. There you can sign up for my email and receive exclusive content, including sneak previews of upcoming guests. Links to Socially Connect on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Truth Social, and YouTube. Locate your favorite platform to subscribe and shop for patriotic merchandise. All of this just for visiting WeThePeopleOurAmericanStory.com. And finally, be a voice, a strong voice for freedom, a voice that never wavers. As Benjamin Franklin so eloquently stated, where liberty dwells, there is my country. 